Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Tales to Terrify and Starship Sofa, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 147. I am your host, Nicola seaton Clark. Now, there's a little over a week left in the District of Wonders Kickstarter campaign for the anthology Everyone, Worlds Without Walls. Kickstarter has tagged it as one of their projects we love, and we've exceeded our initial goal, allowing us to add more authors to the table of contents. Check out the link on our show notes for more info and to make a pledge. This week we bring you Dependent Assemblies by Philip A. Sugars, one of the first stories we acquired during our recent submissions period, and with good reason, as you'll soon hear. Philip is a British writer with a single yellow eye in the middle of his forehead and a collection of vintage binoculars. His work has appeared in The Guardian, Strange Horizons, Persistent Visions magazine and Interzone, and has been performed for Starship Sofa and the London chapter of the Liars League. He was winner of the Short Story Award at the Ilkley Literature Festival, judged by Man Booker Prize longlister Jane Rogers, and runner-up for the James White Award. He lives with three hairless primates and an imaginary cat. Visit his website and Twitter via the links in our show notes. And now... Dependent Assemblies by Philip A. Sugars. Purity of blood, purity of spirit. One nation united by the river, one nation united under the sun. Elias Rojas, Presidential Campaign Slogan, Buenos Aires, 1894. Alfonso and Marcella were cold and tired as they shoveled the dirt onto Celia's small body in the shallow grave. Alfonso dared himself to look down, catching a glimpse of her porcelain fingers and the yellowing heads of the Frisius that they had buried with her in the garden. He wanted to cry, but all he felt was an aching numbness in his fingertips. A sudden play of spotlights above the cloud announced the arrival of a nonathepteron. The monolithic black moth burst through the gray canopy that covered the city and flapped low over their house, bellowing a haunting call so deep it throbbed in Alfonso's chest. 
The limelights around the creature's saucer eyes played across the nearby terraces, and the liquid steel ribbons of its siri darted downwards, tasting the air. The downdraft from the creature's colossal wings blew dust and gravel into the eyes of the two men as they ducked into the shadows of Alfonso's studio. Alfonso held his breath, terrified that the creatures had been attracted by the smell of the stolen lux hidden in Marcello's workshop. But it soon flapped away over the curfewed city, back towards its master, Elias Augustin Rojas, on his presidential throne in the Casa Rosada. After the creature was gone, Marcello kissed Alfonso on the cheek and pressed the younger man back on his feet. He rolled up his shirt sleeves and pulled a bencheroot out of his waistcoat, striking a match along the brickwork of the studio wall. Alfonso shivered. He wanted to caress Marcello's slender arms, to take him to bed and whisper to him to forget about Rojas, his red-shirted patrols, his informers, and all his moral prescriptions. He wanted Marcello to look at him the way that he used to, when they would meet at La Veredita, drink Campari, and play backgammon and dance tangos until dawn. Do you still love me? said Alfonso. Marcello looked down at the dirt, his face still illuminated in the glows from the departing creature's searchlights. A spectral smile played across his lips. It's just that I'm not sure I can keep doing this, said Alfonso. Each one that we put in the ground... Marcello stepped back and tapped the ash from the tip of his cigar. He drew Alfonso to him and kissed him on the lips. We start again, Marcello whispered. He opened the back door of the house, leaving Alfonso to return to the dark of his studio. It was always Alfonso's job to make the faces, the hands, and the eyes. He stood in his studio and worked the clay now, his fingers teasing the material, inviting them to tell him what it wanted to be. He remembered the face of each girl that he had sculpted, Agatha with Marcello's high cheekbones and his own thin lips, Emily with his own large eyes and Marcello's flat forehead, and, of course, there had been Celia. He had tried to impart something unique to each before painting the skin as dark as his own and firing it until it glistened like autumn sunshine. He paused and pulled two bent letters from his apron pocket and then took a half-empty bottle of sweet sherry from beneath the workbench and uncorked it. The sickly, raisin smell of the liqueur made his stomach rumble. He laid the letters next to the bottle and took a dirty glass from an overhead shelf. He wiped the glass on his shirt-tails and filled it. He had found the envelopes on the front doorstep of the house yesterday and the day before, other than a roughly scrawled M on the front, indicating Alfonso assumed that they were intended for Marcello, they were otherwise unmarked. He picked one up and turned it over, running his clay-stained fingertips across the paper. He pressed it to his nose. A hint of something floral and decayed came from within. He wondered how many more of these Marcello had received before he had started intercepting them. He swallowed a glassful of sherry, licked his lips and refilled the glass, spilling a few sticky drops onto his fingers. Marcello's evasiveness about his past had been something that had excited Alfonso at first, but now it formed a barrier between them as hard as fired clay. The older man carried a weight, a sadness so monumental that it resisted all Alfonso's attempts to lift it. He looked up at the faint flickers of light that bled from the blacked-out windows of Marcello's workshop. 
The tell-tale flashes betrayed the older man's attempts to correct the mechanical problems that had taken their children from them. Each of their girls had been a wondrous concoction created from ceramics, cobwebs, and love, each one imbued with life for a time by a few drops of magical lux, but each had ended cold and quiet as a stopped watch, and each had taken a piece of Alfonso with them when they had been laid to rest. Alfonso drank another glass of sherry, feeling the cold kiss of the liqueur as it ran down his throat. He placed the glass on the table and filled it again. Our nation is morally infected by the mestizo, the pardo, the castizo, each one the result of unchecked miscegenation, each one inferior in all the finer qualities to the native-born white creole or imported Spaniard. Augusto Lebon, Pueblo Enfermo, 1888. Alfonso woke at midnight, slumped over his workbench. He had been dreaming about the night that he and Marcello had met. Alfonso rubbed his eyes and remembered how he and his friends had laughed when Elias Rojas had first stood for election. Rojas, the country bumpkin, the yokel bankrolled by the English, as famous for the wells he'd dug to collect the lux as for being the first to harness its life-giving properties. There had been rumors, of course, stories about how it was the inverts, the indigenes, and the mestizos who worked at Rojas' drilling compound. How the shuffling monsters that he animated tore anyone who resisted into pieces or tossed them into the wells to drown in the blackness within. Before then, before Rojas had become president, Alfonso had taken little notice of such things. Men with appetites like Alfonso's had merely lurked in the gaps in between, in the woods around the Bosques de Palermo, or the all-male tango practices at cafes like La Veredita. Alfonso yawned and slapped his dry lips together. The sherry bottle and the unopened letter sat in front of him. His back cracked as he stretched. He stuffed the letters back into his apron pocket, and then collected his latest creations, the face, the palms, and the finger joints, and placed them on a cooling tray. He carried the tray across the garden and up to the workshop, avoiding the blank doorway of Celia's room. He looked at the upturn porcelain face. It had a blank and expectant air, but he already saw how, when rendered moto by the lux, the corners of the mouth would turn up in a smile. He saw the mischief that lay in the eyes, with their irises the color of autumn oak and flecks of river plate green. He'd based them on how Marcellos had looked that first night in La Veredita. The hands, for their part, were long-fingered, strong, and capable. In the workshop she lay on a raised metal bedstead, a child-sized copper skeleton, threaded head to foot with hydraulic veins that would carry the stolen lux to pneumatic muscles and organs. Her torso was replete with the tiny pumps powered from intricate gear assemblies that clustered at elbows, knees, and hips like bouquets of metal flowers. Marcella was bent over her skeleton, head buried in the rib cage as he screwed her cardiac mechanism into place, a metal sphere studded with hydraulic couplings that would circulate the lux throughout the body's dependent assemblies, the multitude of connecting cables that made it resemble a large golden spider. These are the best I've made, I think, said Alfonso, fitting the eyes into the naked metal of the skull and coaxing the porcelain face over them. Marcello grunted and continued his work. Wallflower, said Alfonso. Yes, Marcello replied, voice echoing metallically from inside the torso. 
I was thinking earlier, continued Alfonso. <laughs> always a dangerous proposition, chuckled Marcello humorously. We always treat this as an engineering problem, you and I, Alfonso said, threading the finger joints into the metal knuckles. Alterations to hydraulic organs, lux regulators, that sort of thing. But what if it's something else? Like what? replied Marcello, breathing through his nose as he tightened bolts with a spanner. What if Rojas is right? said Alfonso. What if people like us aren't supposed to have children? What sort of life will she have? Marcello snorted and emerged from the chassis, his red eyes attesting to how little sleep he had that night. Do you really believe that rot? he said, sadness tempering his irritation. He twisted open a valve in the cardiac chamber, attaching a short length of rubber tubing. Children are children, however they're made. In any case, I really think I've fixed it this time. You always say that, whispered Alfonso. Marcello connected the rubber tube to the large barrel in the corner of the workshop, then attached a foot pump to a secondary valve on the cardiac mechanism and pumped vigorously. The tube pulsed and glowed with gold as the lux was drawn into the copper heart. From there, it would be distributed through the body, and after a few hours, if they were lucky, their daughter would stir and open her eyes to see the world for the first time. Alfonso rested his hand on his apron pocket. His thumb toyed with one of the letters. He opened his mouth to speak. "'Could you be a sweetheart and bring me the spare Deward flask from downstairs, please?' said Marcello. Alfonso paused, then hurried into the hallway. As he did so, he heard the sound of footsteps on the gravel driveway outside the house and froze. He peered into the darkness from the hall window. There was a small, hooded figure silhouetted against the leaves of the privet hedge at the front of the house. Alfonso's throat felt dry, since Rojas's pushed many men that he had danced face to face with at La Veredita had ended up in the pay of the Department of Moral Hygiene working as honey-traps or selling names. He slipped down the stairs two at a time, sweat itching under his armpits. He picked up the small hand-axe that they kept in the pantry and stepped back into the garden. Shivering, he unhitched the garden gate and tiptoed onto the gravel path that led past the house and to the hedge beyond. The dark shape was crouched over the flat granite slab of the doorstep, it cocked its head and sniffed the air in a way that did not seem entirely human. Alfonso shuddered as he watched multiple black tongues unfurling from beneath the creature's hood and flickering in the air. The axe slipped from his grasp, clattering onto the gravel path. Startled by the noise, the creature fled through the gap in the privet and ran lopsidedly into the road. As it did so, it dropped something that Alfonso recognized as an envelope similar to the ones in his apron pocket. The figure bent to retrieve it, and as it did so, Alfonso caught a glimpse of the figure's face. His knees went weak and his stomach retched dryly. He staggered back into the studio and slumped onto the bench. He uncorked the sherry bottle and took two large swigs. All he could think about was what he had seen beneath the hood. The crow eyes clustered like bubbles on a pond, the mouths and the tongues that undulated like black seaweed. Did you get the flask? said Marcello as Alfonso walked into the workshop trembling and ashen face. Please, I can't go on like this, said Alfonso. He leaned against the doorframe, 
pulled the letters from his apron pocket and tossed them in front of Marcello. I need to know who's sending these and why they're hiding outside our house in the middle of the night. Marcello picked the letters up off the floor, settling himself on a stool. He dusted the envelopes down with his cuff and examined them. He exhaled through his teeth and licked his dry lips. His skin looked as pale as paper. I, I think we should both have a drink, he said, and ushered the still-shaking Alfonso downstairs into the kitchen and sat him at the table. He drew the curtains and lit a lamp, turning the wick down low. The embers of a dying fire still crackled in the grate. Marcello poured large glasses of port wine for both of them, lit a cheroot, and sat down in the chair opposite. He puffed on the cigar and blew out a stream of smoke. So, said Alfonso. So, repeated Marcello. He cleared his throat and sipped at his drink. Once upon a time, he said and swallowed, I was a surgeon out in the provinces. I married well, although my heart wasn't in it. I had a promising career, and being an idealistic young thing, I used my wife's money to start a smallpox vaccination program in Andre Rios, among other places. Marcelo sipped his drink. Very quickly I ran up against Rojas and his goons. At that time, he was just a plantation owner, with designs on becoming governor, but he'd read all of that bunctum by Van Tu and Le Bon and swallowed it whole. A lot of us did back then believing that the nation was a chain and that its weakest link should be allowed to break. He wrote to me, saying he was a fan of my work, but not of its consequences. So what? said Alfonso. Has this got to do with us? I'm coming to that, said Marcello. Many years earlier I had written some indiscreet letters to a young friend. Rojas had somehow procured them and threatened to make them public unless I immediately stopped the vaccination program and came to work for him at his compound, outside Parana. My wife was glad to see me go, and while the relief was mutual, the compound was a ghastly place. There wasn't a patch of grass or flowers, just mud and dirt and rocks and stones, except, of course, for the lawn outside the boss's house. That was a rich green, and covered in purple bougainvillea, roses, and tulips, Rojas's overseer looked after those flowers better than they looked after the wretches in the compound. "'But why did they need you?' said Alfonso. "'Why, indeed.' Marcelo flicked the end of the cigar at the brash ashtray that stood next to the wall. "'Lux is funny stuff, you see. It brings most inorganic matter to life, but if it comes into contact with living tissue for any amount of time, it does odd things.' They call it Luxi, out in the Pampas. That's what happens to you when you work in the wells for too long. Fingers, toes, but mostly eyes grow and multiply. For reasons that no one fully understands, Lux seems to like eyes. Marcello shivered and sipped his drink. I worked as the compound's medic, but I did other things as well, he said, and drained his glass. He cleared his throat. What sort of things? said Alfonso. Special projects that Rojas demanded. Amputations, grafts, implants. I was told the subjects were incurable, terminal cases. And once someone is poisoned, there is no medical reason why you can't pump as much lux into them as you like, he said, and threw the butt of the cigar into the fire 
where it flared into bright red curls of flame. Alfonso stood up. His stomach swam. He couldn't believe what Marcello was telling him. He leaned on the mantelpiece and tried to anchor himself in the rich ash smell of the fire. But you ran away, didn't you? he said. Eventually, said Marcello, after Ignacio died. Without looking at Marcello, Alfonso took his glass from the table and swallowed its contents in a single gulp. I saw him the first day I was there. He was part of the drill crew from Tower 12, always picking fights with the overseers. He could drink like an ox and was as stubborn as a mule. The moment I saw him, I knew, and he knew, that we were kindred spirits. He had a younger sister, Isabel, a pretty little thing. She was dark as a nut and funny as an egg, as they say in the Pampas. One day Ignacio came charging into camp carrying her. She'd been out picking wild maize, stumbled into a rain gully, and knocked herself unconscious. Nothing serious, just a minor contusion. I dressed the wound, gave her a lollipop, and sent her on her way. The next morning there was a knock on the door of my surgery, and there was Isabel, her eyes full of mischief. She put her hands on her lips, placed a necklace of bourguignon around my neck, and ran away. Every morning after that I found a chain of tulips or rings of roses woven together and left in my front door. Ignacio visited the following evening. He'd been given a beating for leaving his crew to go rescue his sister. He was silent as I put iodine on his cuts and bandaged his wrists, and when he left he asked me for a cigarette. He took two, putting one behind his ear and the other in his mouth. As I lit it, he whispered, Drill five, eight o'clock. Drill five was one of the first that had been erected on the estate. It was a derelict clapboard tower about thirty feet high, with a well as dry as a tomb. I made my way up after dark. The boarded door had already been pried off and replaced to hang from a single nail. Inside, Ignacio was waiting. We drank a bottle of cane liquor together and then made love. Despite the fear of discovery and the squalid surroundings, or perhaps because of them, that evening was the closest I'd ever been to being happy, I think, until we met. He looked up at Alfonso and smiled, but Alfonso ignored him. Next thing, Ignacio was shaking me awake. I had a splitting headache and my tongue was stuck to the roof of my mouth. Light was already coming through the slats of the drill tower. My heart was pounding. It was late, and of course there was no way that we could walk into camp together. Before Ignacio went ahead, he turned, gave me a brilliant smile, and kissed me. That was the last time I saw him alive. I walked back over the brow of the hill and had just returned to my surgery at the end of the compound when I heard a gunshot. I knew that something terrible had happened, but by the time I got there, it was all too late. In the middle of the camp were a group of three or four overseers. The chief was on horseback. Ignacio laid face down in front of him. He'd been shot here, said Marcello, tapping the center of his forehead. His voice assumed a neutral tone. There was nothing I could do for him. A bullet at that range, well, he swirled an index finger at the back of his head. Nothing is left. He swallowed. The chief was slinging his rifle. You all saw him. He was going to kill me. I had no choice, he said, and spat on the ground. 
He repeated it as people began to gather round. It was only then that I saw Isabel's tiny body hanging from the jacaranda tree at the center of the compound. She was wearing a necklace made of the bougainvillea that she had filched from outside Rojas' office. The word thief had been scrawled on a piece of paper and pinned to her dress. I wasn't thinking clearly. I fetched a machete and cut Isabel down and carried her to my surgery. I worked in a daze for hours doing the only thing that I knew how to do, the thing that the camp had taught me to do. I applied all the techniques I had learned. I used more lux than I had ever dared, but it was all for naught. Marcello shrugged in the chair and crossed, then uncrossed his legs. He ran a finger across his lips and looked at Alfonso. I took the machete and another bottle of cane liquor, and I went and sat behind a tree outside the cantina where the overseers spent most evenings. I waited for the chief to emerge. I wanted to gut him like a rabbit. It was late when he stumbled out and walked around the back of the hut. He leaned on the wall, unbuttoned his trousers, and relieved himself. I crept up on him. I could see his hands were shaking. I pulled out the machete. My hands were shaking, too. I'm not sure if it was from the liquor or the fear. I grabbed him by the throat and twisted him around to face me. His eyes were yellow as a dog's. I waved the machete in his face, but he pushed his throat onto the edge of the blade and pissed all over my shoes. Puto, he whispered and spat on the ground. Then he shrugged me off, did up his fly, and walked away. Alfonso stirred the embers of the fire with a poker. The flames flared up and Marcello's eyes flashed orange in the dark. So what did you do? said Alfonso, his lips tight. Like all cowards, replied Marcello, I ran away. When I got to my surgery, the overseers had ransacked the place and Isabel's body was gone. I packed what little I had and left. It wasn't until later I realized what had happened to her. Marcello shifted in the chair and held his hands up to the light. I changed my last name and moved to the city. I drank. I tried to forget. After I met you, I did, a little. And then two months ago, the letters started. Marcello covered his mouth and coughed. And I saw her one night, standing in the shadows, outside the house, all alone. He picked up the foremost envelope and ran a tobacco-stained fingernail under its flap and tore it open. A handful of bougainvillea tumbled out of the envelope. The second letter contained tulips woven into a simple necklace. Marcello looked up at Alfonso. We should go back upstairs and finish our work, he said, standing up. Isabel needs a friend. Alfonso's hands were shaking, and he felt nauseous. The port made his head swim. Marcello looked drawn. Far from providing relief, retelling the events had drained him. Alfonso opened the back door. He kicked off his boots and stepped out into the darkness, enjoying the bite of the gravel on his feet. I'm so sorry, Wallflower, he said, and closed the door behind him. Alfonso had no idea how long he stood in the garden, but it was long enough for his hands and feet to become numb from the cold. 
The flashes of light that came from beneath the workshop's blackout curtains transformed the rows of fuchsia bushes into nodding phantoms as Marcello worked into the dawn. A sliver of light had crept along the eastern horizon when Alfonso heard him clamber out the attic window to stand on the flat roof beyond. He was swaying, holding the now empty bottle of port in one hand, naked and luminescent from the lux that he had smeared on himself. He stood for a second, a smiling ghost with arms outstretched. The ornithiparon was on him before he'd even got halfway across the roof. It dropped out of nowhere, picked him up like a doll, and disappeared into the remains of the night. Yatoros somos indigenas. We are all indigenes now. Graffito outside the Casa Rosada, 1897. Alfonso held the handrail as the ferry rolled in the wash from the river. The sun was high in the sky, but obscured by a thick band of cloud. He looked down at the gray waves as they scudded into the bow, then looked back at Buenos Aires, rocking on the horizon over the stern. Ornithopterons patrolled the city like enormous hungry gulls. Where are we going, father? said the veiled figure that stood at Alfonso's side. He had christened her Marcella. She had his eyes, after all. We're going across the sea, little one, he said. He took her gloved hand in his and forced a smile. He remembered how he and Marcella planned this escape, how they might slip across the water, first a ferry to Montevideo, and then perhaps a packet steamer to Liverpool, then on to Europe. Rumor had it that people were already dancing tango in Paris. He could cry for all of them now, for their girls, for himself, and his poor, sweet monster, Marcello. Marcella's grip on his hand tightened, he had to be here for her now. He looked back across the deck of the ship, and for a moment he glimpsed the familiar hooded figure of another child lurking in the shadows beneath the bridge. Isabella had followed them like she always did, keeping her distance, yet getting closer every day. Soon it would be time to introduce her to Marcella, thought Alfonso. Soon, but not quite yet. So that was Dependent Assemblies by Philip A. Sugars, as read by Seth Williams, an avatar for a three-kilometre sentient starship that is parked probably uncomfortably close to the third planet. Surprisingly, he has not yet been discovered. But he's very happy that the inhabitants have discovered enough technology so that he can communicate in this limited fashion. Any communications can be directed to the link in our show notes. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from our listeners, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. As always, please leave us a review on iTunes or other podcatchers so that we can build our listenership and keep the stories flowing. And please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders Patreon page so that we can keep the podcast up and running. Also, please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but you can't change it and you really cannot sell it. And please be sure to give credit where that credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors, and violators will be pumped full of lux.
I'm off to go and try and grow myself a single yellow eye in the middle of my forehead. It sounds ultimately cool. I'll see you next week. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.